This is Alan Adamson, co-author of Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. And now... On with the show. Today, we welcome Alan Adamson to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book that he has co-authored with Joel Steckel, Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Alan is a branding expert, a Forbes.com colonist, and the author of other books, including Brand Simple and Brand Digital. And he is the co-founder and managing partner of Metaforce, a new marketing and product consultancy which takes a multidisciplinary channel agnostic approach to uh, marketing challenges. And prior to this, Alan was chairman of Lander Associates, a global communications and brand strategy consultancy. And before that, Alan worked on both the agency and the client side of uh, the industry. At Unilever, he was a marketing executive across a number of major packaged goods brands, and he also held senior management positions at Ogilvy & Mather and DMB&B, formerly known as Darcy, Macius, Benton & Bowles. Alan, congratulations on Shift Ahead, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. And after that introduction, we should probably end it now, and I'll be way ahead. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Now, um, I should uh, mention that uh, I, I once worked on Madison Avenue, at, not at these agencies, but some others, and that's why a, a nerd like me would know the former name of DMBNB. And uh, when I started out at J. Walter Thompson in the 80s, my very first account I worked on was Unilever. <laughs> Incredible. And now, now you, you can say JWT. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was on the Lever 2000 deodorant soap account. They finally wow. came up with a product with their name on it. Sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Yes, yes. So, Alan Adamson, you really had me laughing, and I just, it reminded me of my own world, because at the very beginning of the book, you talked about your dad, and you were on a trip to Oxford, England with your son Josh and your daughter Alyssa, and they had discovered your first book, Brand Simple, in a bookstore there, and for about 15 seconds, you said they were interested in what their dad did for a living. That was the last 15 seconds. Uh, maybe <laughs> right. if, their, if their cell phone battery dies, I'll be relevant again. But right. until that happens, uh, yeah. that, that was my moment in the sun. Well, I could really relate to that. You know, it's like, I don't know, what, what does dad do? I don't know. He has a lot of Twitter followers, but beyond that, He's I He's always know. on the phone. Who knows? <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. So the first chapter of the book is titled, Why This Book? <laughs> so, Alan Adamson, why this book, and what does it have to do with the word relevant? 
Well, you know, the impetus for the book was the the notion that more and more clients were coming and saying, gee, you know, my sales are down. My competition uh, is eating my lunch. You know, can you help? And yeah, I would look at their business and their brand and their marketing. And more often than not, it wasn't a question of, gee, what you need is going back to where we started, you know, a, a great ad will solve this. Or why don't you uh, improve your social media strategy? Yeah. They were at a place where that marketing, if you would, the old definition of just telling your story better, uh, was not going to help them. And I began to say, was it, gee, was it, is it me or more and more of my clients coming to me with problems that are not related to how they go out and tell their story, their branding, their marketing, but their relevance, you know, their offer is, even if I told their story, would people care? And mm -hmm. That began my journey to say, gee, I wonder if it's just me or, you know, are more and more companies, organizations uh, having the challenge of staying relevant? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just want to read one excerpt uh, from the beginning of the book, and then I'd like to go into the seven red flags, or I like to think of them as the seven deadly sins <laughs> of not being able to shift ahead. Breakthroughs in science, data analysis, healthcare, media, and education are occurring at compounded rates of speed. The way we bank, secure our homes, get our entertainment, measure the effect of our exercise regimens, acquire information, share information, buy our food, use energy to run our households, and perform almost every other daily activity is changing literally before our eyes and during our lifetimes. The ongoing transformations in the way technology works, businesses work, and almost everything else in the world works is having a major impact on how we work, plan, decide, think, and live. It was with this idea in mind that we set out to write Shift Ahead. It is based on our hands-on experience, our academic research, and most significant, our more than 100 interviews with senior management and category experts from a wide spectrum of applicable fields. We wrote Shift Ahead to document how the smartest companies and organizations shift their strategies in order to stay relevant in the face of the swift and exponential changes in everything from technology to the forces of globalization, from politics to culture, from consumer taste to human behavior. We wanted to find out how they shift ahead, how they stayed ahead of the curve, the competition, and the evolving requirements of their customers, given the barrage of evolving challenges. I, I just think that this is such, uh, Alan, such a big issue, what's keeping people up, and it's I see a lot of paralysis because of it. Yeah, when we went out and spoke to more than 100 organizations, the vast majority of them had struggled at best to shift their business and keep it relevant, but most had failed. And so, you know, the the while we were looking for, you know, here are your three magic steps to prevent this from happening, there was a far longer list of symptoms that would, you know, the deadly sins or the, the, the that would get you so far stuck in the mud that, you know, getting out became less and less likely. <laughs> right. And if you don't mind, I would like to talk about these seven because each one of them made me stand up and say, yes, it's like it's, it was, it was, they're, they're so true. But knowing that you'd looked at a hundred folks and you'd have some distance, you're able to find these like seven threads that seem to go through all of them. So, Let's, if you don't mind, can we just go through them? And I want to ask you to talk about the basic math. Uh, there's a lot of companies just ignoring the basic math. 
Explain. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the basic math is, you know, that often by the time your sales are dropping, <laughs> the game is almost over. Uh, you, you're at that point, you are uh, you've lost relevance. Uh, a competition has a competitor has come in and uh, taken your moved your cheese. You may be out of money, you know. Yeah. And so most organizations, you know, one of the things they do is they they just watch sales and say, oh, our sales are down. Now let's do something. And, you know, it's the ultimate, you know, rearview mirror way of driving. But the other, there were some, you know, almost across the board for companies that struggle to, to shift ahead uh, was the gravitational pull of a few things. You know, one is what uh, we called it Marty Crane's chair. You know, if you remember the old Fraser show, for those of you who are international viewers may not know, mm-hmm. but uh, Marty Crane, uh, you know, was uh, Fraser's dad and everything in the apartment was very new, except Marty had this old, what we call the lazy boy, boy lounger, an old chair. He liked to sit in because that was his chair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, we, that was across the board that the familiar is comfortable. You know, it's yesterday feels comfortable. If you ask consumers what do they like better, yesterday's food or tomorrow's food, most people say yesterday's food. You know, people are gravitational pull keeps you in that old comfortable chair. Yes, the comfort zone. Comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you don't fight that, you end up just being comfortable and until it's too late, until your sales are you know falling out of the sky and you've been disrupted. Mm-hmm. The other is you know. This notion of what I call, you know, cruise control, um, and it came to me actually when I was uh, when I was teaching my uh, uh, son to drive a couple of years ago, and we, you know, I, I tried to explain to him that when I learned to drive it was on something called a manual transmission, which most people don't remember, but you actually had to shift gears to get the car to go from you know slow to fast to slow mm-hmm. to fast. And you had to pay attention to what you were doing. You had to listen to the motor. You had to change gears if you're going uphill or downhill or passing around the course. And so you really had to be in touch with your car's engine and and the road. And today, you know, we're we're moments away from your phone driving your car. So all you have to do is, <laughs> you know, perhaps uh, sync it up and uh, ask Siri to drive you. Mm-hmm. So we're almost there. So most people driving today, you know, once they get and once they get into fourth gear or once they get on the highway, you can you can talk, you can listen to the radio. Uh, but if you're driving a stick and just learning, certainly if you're just learning, you have to pay attention. Most companies operate in cruise control. They they sort of find their groove and they do what worked last year, and then they just put it on autopilot. And, you know, the companies that get into trouble the fastest and get, you know, get way behind and have trouble shifting ahead end up having spent too much time in cruise control where autopilot, everything's good until it's not good. And Mm -hmm. then it's often too late. Yeah. I sort of lulled into a false sense of security. And, but again, I, I, I was just sort of surprised that you found so many companies that were uh, not as in tune with the, some of the basic math, but but let's talk about another one that I just see all the time. And I guess you know it's it's almost like a an impulse, but it's a it's a bad impulse. It's almost like a when a company is or when you're driving a car and you start to skid, and you mm-hmm. tend to want to steer away from that when actually you should right. steer into it. That's what makes me think of this concept of too many companies are competing on price and not differentiation. It's like their first impulse is one to to drop price and. Um, perhaps you could talk about why differentiation seems to be ignored. Instead, they they go at the price. Yeah, I mean, differentiation is one. It's hard to do. It takes time. You often need to reinvent yourself to be different and relevant. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, price you can 
flick a switch and be different. I mean, ironically, I'm, I'm sure when this program is going to air, but the front page of the Wall Street Journal today is about the long term. And we do the Procter & Gamble story in the book and talk a lot about P&G and how it's gone from the top of the game to struggling to shift. But the big story today is that P&G is struggling because they lowered their prices across the board last year to try to gain market share back. Uh, and all that did was gain a little share, but you know, cut into their profits. And they're left with the same problem they had a year ago, <laughs> only they have less profitability to reinvest in the business. So, you know, it is a, you know, the other dynamic that prevents companies from shifting is what we call the, another concept called the golden handcuffs, that, that, you know, companies are driven to deliver quarter to quarter, and it's easier to make a quick short-term decision than a more perhaps painful short-term to lead to a better long-term. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this world, it's easier to cut price uh, than to reinvent your product. Yes, yes. And we'll make sure to include a link to that, that article from today's Wall Street Journal in your episode's show notes at, at marketingbookpodcast.com. Um, so another concept that you talk about, there was an entire book that Martin Lindstrom wrote about. Uh, when you, you say big on data, short on analysis, his book was called Small Data. And it talks about how you, you can't, um, well, let me use an Ogilvyism. I think he was the one who said that, uh, like, uh, uh, some uh, marketers use uh, research, like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. And it's the sort of thing where a lot of the companies, are they're just swimming in all this data, but they're not stepping back to <laughs> do any kind of insight. Right. And, you know, yes, if you're very good, and there were some examples in the in the book of companies that grew up in the world of data, and as such, and we'll talk about it maybe in a minute, uh, are able to look at lots of data and make, draw insights and then take action. But the majority of people collect the data, mm -hmm. uh, but don't really understand, so so what? <laughs> so right. people are using us Friday at four o'clock and not Monday at nine o'clock, you know, so what? And, you know, some of the best uh, market researchers we spoke to um, uh, we're great at observational research, you know, back to the, if you think of what uh, Jerry Seinfeld built his career on, mm. he would look at the ordinary. So you ever wonder why people do this? And some of the best market researchers that prevent you from being outshifted uh, mm -hmm. are great at saying, gee, you know, people are currently buying you, but you ever wonder why that is? You know, you know, w why do people want to own a car today when, you know, they can just double click on their phone and maybe get picked up and, you know, so you know, it is, of course, easy when you see it and somebody else does it. But the trick is looking around the corner is really hard. Yes. And I think, uh, as you mentioned before we started the interview, there's a lot of out-of-work comedians. So maybe more companies could hire uh, comedians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To... It didn't help American Express that much when <laughs> they hired Jerry. But that's, uh, right. that's a separate story. That's right. Can you explain what you mean by... Uh, Companies neglecting table stakes again, kind of a surprise. Yeah, everyone, you know, everyone says they are. It may be back to the research. You know, we're very consumer centric, and uh, we keep an. You know, but they they often you know, forget the basics, uh, and so. Um, and what what they actually mean to their customers, or what right. what purpose they or, have, or problems. Right, or they solving. get the, the other one that's tied to tie to that is they get very. And this is a very old marketing term that was around. 
when JWT was J.W. Walter Thompson and uh, and the Mad Men were ruling Madison Avenue is yeah some, a, a term from uh, an old uh, Harvard Business Review the marketing myopia yes and you know the most sophisticated companies suffer from myopia they mm-hmm. they look at you know so I I also tell the story in the book one more story about my son I was taking him off to college and we're at the airport and I said well let's rent a car and he looks at me like I'm from Mars right. you know what do you mean rent a car I'm not taking a train to the bus to the car to park you know we could and you know, I, I, we had a, a lot of conversations with with Hertz, and if you look at what Hertz is doing, they, you know, lots of their marketing efforts were saying, you know, how are they going to beat National, and what's better about their Hertz than the than the Avis or uh-huh. Alamo, and you know, they're very preoccupied with out maneuvering the other car rental companies, and of course, what's happening is people are just skipping the whole aisle <laughs> and saying, you know, I don't want to rent a car. So they, they, they are doing a better job of maybe winning market share in a shrinking, shrinking world. So, um, you know, not being myopic is a table stake that's marketing 101. Mm-hmm. yet most companies, uh, still struggle with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one that got me the most excited and I've seen so much is that you talk about pride goes before the fall and, and you talked about a, a company arrogant and in love with its own success and way of doing things brandishes a big red flag. Yeah. Um, you know, the more arrogant or confident you are, the higher likelihood you're going to be outshifted. And we have a number of stories in the book. You know, one of them was Blackberry, you know, Blackberry yes. was a client of mine when it was, uh, the uh, business tool of choice that if you went to a meeting and you weren't, uh, if you didn't have a BlackBerry on your belt, you were, you were not important or a BlackBerry in your hand to, mm-hmm. if you had a BlackBerry to, boy, you must be your father's Oldsmobile. Yeah. And, you know, what happened was that uh, we spoke to lots of people at BlackBerry uh, when they were at the top of the game and then when they started to slide and when they disappeared. And when we spoke to the CMO who was, you know, uh, in the, uh, on the downside of that curve, you know, they just didn't believe they thought, you know, a touchscreen was a toy and that Apple was a toy and that no, anyone serious in business wanted that keyboard. And even though they had data saying, no, people were starting to integrate apps and getting used to that screen when even if they had grown up like I did, uh, needing the click of a letter on a keyboard, uh, they had data saying that, no, that, that, that consumers didn't view it as a toy. They viewed it as a toy, so they never got serious until it was too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, black. The other thing is, it's never just one thing that causes a company to end up in the gutter, <laughs> or right. you know, off the road, or left behind. It's usually a number of things. So it's never just, oh, if they had only not been arrogant, uh, I'd be calling you uh, on my BlackBerry today and on my iPhone. But arrogance sort of tied to uh, that famous quote from uh, the former Intel. Uh, CEO Andy Grove of only the paranoid survive. Mm-hmm. Companies that are paranoid and think they're they're going to be gone tomorrow tend to do better than companies that think they're the king of the hill and no one can take the hill. Amen, amen. Now it w- let's just go back for a minute to Marty Crane's uh, recliner uh, from mm-hmm. the Fraser Show, and you. I want you to talk a little bit about Kodak, particularly as it relates to being too deep in a comfort zone. That was such an interesting story. I I didn't have all the details and about that really until I, I read your book, but that was very interesting and, and, and very interesting that you tied it to 
more to comfort zone than to, let's say, arrogance. Yeah, I I had the privilege of uh, working with Kodak a few times in my career when I was in the advertising business. And I worked with them, you know, the last time when they were pretty much near the peak when you could, when Kodak was sponsoring the Olympics. And if you had the Kodak ad account on Madison Avenue, that was You'd, you'd made it. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They did phenomenal. You know, their advertising, if you look back, um, if any of your listeners want to do it, you know, was phenomenal. It was better than Apple because they were talking about, you know, if you want memories, you want Kodak mm-hmm. and image. And but, you know, so I just assume I worked for them and I, they began to get some digital cameras were on the market already. But anyone serious about photography back in those days? Looked at just like BlackBerry looked at <laughs> digital cameras and toys, mm-hmm. but so and when I Kodak and, didn't Kodak get the patent on? Yeah, they had all the technology. They were they were selling they're the inventors. Digital. Yeah, yeah, they invented all. They have lots of that. We'll come back to that. But so I just assumed that gee, they they were arrogant and you know they they just didn't see the train coming down the track. Uh, so when we did our research, we spoke to lots of people, but not only in the marketing group, but in the strategic planning group and research group who was there during that period of time. And one of the most surprising things was when we talked to the head of planning, uh, he shared that Kodak knew eight or nine years before the time I was there and you know it began to look a little cloudy, uh, that they knew to the year and almost a month, the day that film would be eclipsed by digital. They are forecasting people, they're planning people, were spot on. But despite knowing that, they couldn't pivot the company or shift the company. And one of the reasons was explained to me by another Kodak executive was their inability to make what he called an asymmetrical bet. So basically, the film business was phenomenally profitable. You know, it was just almost one step away from the treasury in terms of printing money. <laughs> Golden handcuffs, yeah. Going on, going half, exactly. And anything they did, if they took $10 from the film business and put it in the digital business, the only thing for sure is they would lose money. <laughs> on, they wouldn't make any money in the digital business, maybe make a penny. But if they kept it in the film business, they were still making $9. Mm-hmm. And so the people in the developing side of the new technologies were starving for tech cash because – the film people said, look, my bonus is tied to how much film I sell. Wall Street is tied to our, our profitability. We can't take money out of the profitable film business and move it to a nascent digital business. So they couldn't internally move funds over. The other surprising thing was uh, another finding from Kodak, which I talk about later in the book, which was um, that you know, when you think about where your business needs to shift to and if Kodak should shift to digital and why didn't they shift, the other factor is lots of companies make a shift that they don't have the natural strength or the, what we call the DNA for. For You know, Joel and I talked about this in the book that, you know, while I could take lots of basketball lessons at five foot eight, uh, it's unlikely, you know, basketball would have been uh, paying for my college tuition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Kodak had a unique DNA. Uh, itself. And there was a huge board meeting where half the board wanted to uh, focus on digital and the other half wanted to remain, in their view, a chemical company because uh, that's what they were. The chemicals were used to make the film and process the film. And they were a huge chemical company in the film business, but they'd also had purchased um, 
other chemical companies and drug companies, pharmaceutical companies. And they decided, no, they're going to be a digital company. And they sold off the Bayer aspirin business and all the pharmaceuticals. They sold off a company which became Eastman Chemical, which is still a very big billion-dollar company in Tennessee. And they said, let's be a digital company. But they didn't have the digital DNA. They were they were a chemical and sales company. So even though they, they had, you know, again, it's not one thing, even though they couldn't make asymmetrical bets, even if they could, they didn't have the skill set uh, that the DNA that existed perhaps in Palo Alto um, mm -hmm. that they needed. So it's, again, not one thing. But Kodak, I, you know, as I said, I think we were surprised as to how many people had trouble shifting, but we actually learned more from the people that struggled to shift than from the people that did it right, because, you know, the, the recipe for doing it right is, you know, reasonably single-minded, you know, but there are a hundred ways you can mess it up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think you also talked about how the, uh, another aspect of their inability to shift ahead was just their, their bureaucracy. Right. You know, they, you know, because in the film business, when you had that much of a lead, fast was not, you know, People would walk around the corner for an extra roll before they didn't buy Kodak. People would wait to get it processed. You know, speed was not part of their success formula. And speed of decision-making, speed of operations. Uh, yet in the digital world, of course, <laughs> you know, if you're not fast, don't even bother showing Yeah, up. there's the, the quick and the dead. Last yeah. last one I want to ask. We can wrap up the deadly sins here. But <laughs> please explain, Yertle the Turtle is left behind. Yeah, it's tied to a number of, you know, everyone wants to try to see, if you would, the road in front of you. And so the Yertle turtle climbs on the top of a turtle. And yeah. The Dr. Seuss Dr. Seuss character. Book, great book. Mm -hmm. um, and um, lots of companies try to peer ahead uh, and say, you know, what's coming down the road. And there are two challenges that happen, even if you can get on top of enough turtles to see over the horizon. One is... Many companies or most companies are pretty good at predicting sort of what may happen, but are terrible at predicting when. <laughs> like mm. in anything else, when timing is as important as what. You know, if you talk to the people at Apple that launched the Newton 20 years ago, <laughs> they had right. the first handheld computer. It's just it, their, their when was wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, some other things too. And the other piece of that, you know, notion of, you know, um, trying to to look ahead is that it's never that clear when you look far in a distance. It gets a little foggy. And you end up with lots of companies getting into analysis paralysis. I think you even mentioned earlier in our talk. Because the answer is not clear. They end up saying, well, we could do this, we could do that. It's not really clear. It's a little foggy out there. So they end up studying it to the point where by the time they're ready to jump off <laughs> and take action, it's too late. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, related to vision, uh, towards the end of the book, you talk about vision and how so many companies talk about, you know, vision being a good thing. And But you argue that peripheral vision is actually what is needed. Can you explain that? Uh, com compare and contrast, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. It's many companies are getting disrupted or shifted around. Not because of we go back to the first conversation we had on. Not because if you're hurts, Avis is doing a better job for you, but but you know something's happening around you mm -hmm. that you're not focused on. And most companies are looking straight ahead. 
Uh, so if you're like you're talking about the car rental people, not necessarily they're thinking about their car rental competitors, but not, not necessarily how people are getting from A to B. Uber and Lyft, right? Right. And the other ways that will happen pretty soon. And so, you know, if you're not looking at the marketplace peripherally, you you, you might be laser focused on what's right in front of you, but the, you know, the vision is not going to do you any good if you're going to get clipped from the side. And most companies, you know, the change happens not. You know, for example, we, we talked about this earlier when you mentioned you worked on Lever 2000. When I was at Unilever, we spent lots of time worrying about Procter and Colgate. And more and more of our competitive research was, or like even today, people at Pepsi are worried about Coke. But in the end of the day, people, young people aren't drinking Pepsi or Coke. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, we called that early in the book playing uh, golf, uh, tennis, not golf. You know, I was more concerned with what the competition was doing than what where the consumer is. And I think... Peripheral vision was our way of saying that the companies that were able to uh, shift ahead, you know, had ability to see in front of them, but also around them, because the opportunity may not be just step on the gas and go faster. The need to shift might be a right turn or a left turn. Right. Actually, can you explain that concept of tennis versus golf? That that could be very helpful for the listener. I'm bad at both games, but, uh, you know, as, uh, as for your listeners to play tennis, you know, if you're, you know, if you're playing tennis, you try to hit the ball where the other person is not, which requires you to pay really close attention to where, where you think the other person's running to, and you try to hit it where the person's not. And you spend a lot of time focusing on that ball. Right. Yeah. But, and, and also trying to hit it where the other person's not. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you, you, what your competitor does, you can win the game by just hitting it where they're not. <laughs> um, in golf, you're not really paying attention, I don't, to the people that I'm playing talking to them. But when I get up to, to you know, to mess up a golf shot, <laughs> I have to be really focused on the ball, the consumer, if you would, the terrain, the wind. You know, you're really paying attention to what's going on in the game, not so much what the three people sitting on the cart are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, companies, whether it's Coke and Pepsi or Unilever and Procter, there is a natural tendency to look out uh, and just look at your competition and say, well, they must be doing something. Let's, uh, did you see what P&G is doing? Or let's look what Avis is doing. Or let's, Coke is doing this. So we got to redesign our cans. Not quite that simplistic, but, you know, you tend to look at the people in your space um, and assume that if you just outmaneuver them, you win the day, but you all could be disruptive. Yes. On page one of the book, you say a central premise of this book is that to remain relevant, businesses must indisputably know why they matter to their customers. Alan Adamson, what do you mean when you say that companies should bathe with their customers? And I go back to when I first started um, in advertising and I was trying to get my first job out of business school and I finally made it to the CEO of the ad agency and I was expecting him to ask me questions about market share. And he asked me a question about what book did I read last? What show had I seen? What movie? He was really concerned with, am I in the marketplace? Do I understand what's going on? What my, what the market thinks? What people are doing? Because he wanted me at that point to be the eyes and ears and in touch with the marketplace, not just sitting behind a desk and reading a report. And we found that, you know, um, 
most companies that live with their consumers out there walking the floor, in the stores, listening to online conversation, hanging out in the call centers, those customers that are almost bathing with their consumers, if you would, going home with them and saying, let's take a shower together, tended to, uh, those clients tended to keep a better pulse and were able to detect changes in their preferences way ahead. By the time somebody sends you an email and says, look at this data, you are already several months into it and it has to be a big, they could sort of sense a tremor. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's true that, that, you know, if you stay in touch with your consumer in a way that is high touch, high touch and feel versus just, you know, do you like the product or not? Because by the time you say, I don't like the product, you might've heard other comments earlier on. So that's why yeah, the trains uh, left the bathing. station at that point. Yeah, hmm. exactly. It's like looking at sales data. Yeah, You're saying our sales are dropping. Just and like now yeah, exactly. So that uh, CEO was none other than Ken Roman, the CEO yeah, exactly. of Ogilvy and Mather, and you know, he said, "What you know? Uh, what what's the what was the last book and what's the last movie you saw?" Right. Right. And that brought to mind when I was an uh, assistant account executive at J. Walter Thompson. There was another assistant account executive there. And every week, he would go see a movie. He would go to a theater and just watch a movie. So in the course of a year, he would have seen 50 movies just to keep up with what was going on. And that guy is now the president, North America, Atlanta Associates, Stuart School. Really? Oh, small world. <laughs> yeah, so you see for the he younger... He never told me that story. Well, he didn't? Oh, okay. <laughs> he wasn't going to the movies uh, at land or that often, but certainly... Oh, okay. it's a good... <laughs> well, he could probably see him at home now, but uh, exactly. at the time... But, but the principle is the same. The yeah. principle is, you know, um, bathe with a consumer. Yes, yes. Um, so, Alan, if, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, the... Shifting a business sounds easy, but it's really hard. <laughs> and, you know, there are a hundred ways you can fail at it. Uh, and so don't assume it's going to be easy. Don't assume it's going to be fast. Don't assume it's going to be cheap. Uh, and, you know, get ready for a marathon, not a quick run around the block. Mm -hmm. and, and to add to that, I, I agree completely, even if... Uh, it, I'm worried that companies think they have to get it 100% right, even if they do just a little bit of what you outline in the book, right. it's going to help. So They're going to you know, eliminate lots of the reasons that some of their uh, competitors have driven off the road. Yes, yes. So what, looking back, what, what books have inspired your work and career? You know, I, I'll go back, and since you've already brought them up, uh, you know, Ken Roman, he wrote a book uh, early on in his career called How to Write Better. And one of the things I learned at Ogilvy was how to, I thought I knew how to write, you learn how to write in school, but you learn how to write English papers. Or yeah, for the papers. teacher. Right. And yes, the better you do that, the better you, you do in many things. But in business, you know, you need to learn how to write in a way that's short, to the point, and persuasive. And his book, How to Write Better, you know, taught me early in my career that simplicity and focus is a driver of success in business. And if you can get your ideas tight and persuasive uh, and focused, it will help you succeed. And, you know, if I think back on how many presentations and meetings that were 80 PowerPoint slides and failed and some that were five PowerPoint slides and <laughs> one, 
you know, that was great advice early in my career, and I was fortunate to get it. You know, I'm going to have to go back to revisit that. I don't know if it's still in print, but uh, I, I have a hunch that it is. That's a, a great uh, that's a great one. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or perhaps looking forward to, to reading? You know, I like to read biographies. Um, mm, me too, yeah. And so I tend to, uh, I'm a big, big Walter Isaacson fan, because when you read about people, whether they're successful, uh, whether it's his Steve Jobs book, which is a bit old now, or his latest one about, uh, he didn't hang out with uh, Leonardo da Vinci, but, you know, his ability to give you some insights into what extraordinary people not only do, but how they got there and their journey gets back to the, actually where we started, because it's never linear. It's usually a marathon. They usually have overcome a number of obstacles. Which nobody seems to know about. Challenges. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone thinks, you know. Oh, they were successful from day easy, one. One, two, three. Yeah. And, you know, reminding yourself that success is never easy. And it, you know, to get to your point where you, where you just mentioned, it's better to try and fail three times because you have a better chance to succeed in the fourth time than to sit in your office and agonize, be a deer in headlights, procrastinate, and think that if you just, you know, forever analyze it, you will succeed on your first try. The best companies that are shifting ahead are always shifting. Mm-hmm. Well said. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your newest book? Uh there is a website, uh, shiftaheadbook.com, which has some excerpts, and uh, um, there's some of that. And, um, you know, every day in the marketplace, if you uh, look in the paper, there's a company we have looked at from P&G to Toys R Us today, uh, struggling with uh, their business, that uh, it just, you learn a lot from looking at why other people win and other people lose. And I I hope that the research we did among those hundred companies can help our listeners do better for themselves. I'm sure it will. I This is a great book, amongst others, to give to your CEO or for a CEO to give to their board. <laughs> so, hey, wait a minute. Maybe you've got a... Maybe you got a pyramid scheme going on here, Alan. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, that's, uh, I, I, I immediately thought of some CEOs that I thought would really um, benefit from this. Now, maybe some people are working at a company where the CEO would get angry <laughs> that they mm-hmm. gave it to them, but they, yeah. they should read it. Um, we'll also include a link to uh, your new company, Metaforce.co, in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Thank you so much, Doug. The name of the book is Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. The authors are Alan Adamson and Joel Steckel. Alan, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Doug. And that closes the book on episode 163 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And do you know what a great conversation starter is? Ask your friends and colleagues what podcast they listen to. And if you think they might like the Marketing Book Podcast, please mention it. 
And please join us next time as we welcome Dave Matson, the CEO and president of Sandler Training, to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Brian Sullivan, Sandler Enterprise Selling, Winning, Growing, and Retaining Major Accounts. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 